Hey everyone, I'm CNN political director David Chalian. Welcome to Politically Sound. For months on this podcast, we've been covering the policies, promises, and challenges that have defined Joe Biden's first 100 days as president. We've talked about everything from the climate crisis to the culture wars, from the filibuster to foreign policy. And there was a lot more that we simply couldn't fit into the first 100 days, a challenge President Biden is also experiencing right now. But for our last episode of these first 100 days, we want to talk about one of the most visceral, heart-wrenching policy challenges facing the country today, gun violence. We never expected that something like this would happen to us. We read about gun violence every single day. Um, It's not acceptable anymore. Something needs to be done about it. Um, Our government, everyone, we need to do something about this. In the last month, according to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been at least 50 mass shootings in this country. Investigators on the scene of three deadly shootings at spas in the Atlanta area. At least eight people are dead in another mass shooting here in the U.S. This one at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, Indiana. The second mass shooting in this country in a week, this time in Boulder, Colorado, at a supermarket. That's not to mention the countless gun deaths from suicides or other shootings that plague this country. And that's not hyperbole. This truly is a plague, a second pandemic, a public health emergency, as Surgeon General Vivek Murthy explained. Look, I I come at this as a a doctor who's cared for many patients who have been victims of gun violence, and I've cared for families also whose loved ones have gone through that tragedy. I do think we need to take action as a country. I do think this is a public health crisis. And here's the thing. In all likelihood, as it has for years, very little will change. The issue is so divisive, so entangled with this uniquely American concept of freedom, that things are all but certain to remain the status quo. But that doesn't mean we don't need to understand how we got here and maybe see a path forward a little clearer. So today, we're going to take a different approach to the gun debate. We're going to examine this concept of freedom around guns. And to do that, we're lucky to be joined by Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA and an expert on gun rights. He's the author of Gunfight, the battle over the right to bear arms in America. He's going to walk us through the origins and evolution of gun rights in the United States and tell us whether any kind of change is possible. So it's time to tune out the noise and tune in to what's politically sound. It is indisputable that guns are wrapped up in what many people view as the fundamental building blocks of freedom in America. Take this song, Guns, by Justin Moore, that perfectly lays out this identity of American independence. So I wanted to try and understand how the connection between guns and freedom came to be. And Professor Winkler was the perfect person to explain. There's been a long association between freedom and guns in America, and it dates back to our earliest days. Remember, the founders who we revere were armed revolutionaries who took up arms to fight against the tyranny of the British. And we also have a country that was built on the frontier. And the frontier was always associated with notions of freedom. And on the frontier, people had guns. Think about any Western movie you've ever seen. It's always a hero living by their own wits and a gun. Like this scene in El Dorado, where John Wayne's character buys another character named Mississippi a new gun. 
likely spot to try that new gun. Can't miss with that. If you were going to go out into the untamed wilderness, you needed to worry about self-protection against wild animals, against potentially hostile native tribes, or bandits. And so arms and freedom have been linked in the American imagination for a long time. You've written a lot about how you believe the framers viewed gun rights when they wrote the Second Amendment versus how it's viewed now. Can you tell us a little bit about that difference, if you see a significant difference? The way the framers understood the right to bear arms and the way that Americans today understand the right to bear arms is very different. In the framers' imagination, arms were essential for national self-defense. The framers did not believe in a standing army. They thought that was a threat to liberty. So instead, they relied on, for national defense, citizens' militias. Basically, militia groups of uh, state citizens who would be called to serve, and they would bring their own guns with them. Um, Firearms were not very effective for the primary use that Americans envision firearms for today. Today, that's basically a a notion of individual self-defense against confrontation by a criminal. That's how Americans today really value uh, the right to bear arms. But in the founding era, the technology of guns was such that arms were not very effective for self-defense against confrontation. If a criminal was coming into your home, a gun wasn't very useful. You weren't uh, capable of keeping a loaded firearm in your home because of the combustibility of gunpowder. Self-defense becomes uh, the common understanding of gun rights over the course of the 1800s when the technology of guns makes them useful for that effect. To recap, the founders had a very different view of gun rights, in part because of changing technology. So as guns became more useful for self-defense, that argument became more central to the gun rights movement. But like so much of American history, race was viewed very differently when the Second Amendment was written. It was a government of white men for white men. So I wanted to know how race played into the evolution of gun rights and gun culture. The founding fathers who wrote the Second Amendment had gun control laws, and many of them were racist. Uh, They prohibited African Americans, whether slave or free, from possessing firearms or from carrying firearms on the public streets. In the late 1800s, after the Civil War in the South, African Americans saw their gun rights taken away as part of Jim Crow and before that, the Black Codes. So race has long been part of the story of guns and gun control in America. And those issues still continue to more modern days. The Black Panthers and other civil rights radicals who took up arms, like Malcolm X, used the Second Amendment and the idea of gun rights as um, a part of their claim for liberation from an oppressive, tyrannical government that was racist and hostile to African Americans and other racial minorities. It's legal in this country to own a rifle. The Negro will be serving notice that no longer does he believe in turning the other cheek and being the constant victim of someone else's brutality. That's Malcolm X, who Professor Winkler was just referring to. You may have seen that famous photo of him peering out his window, rifle in hand. He was just one of the black leaders in the 1960s calling for black people to take up arms. Another was Bobby Seale, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party. In 1967, when California tried to pass a restrictive gun law, Seale and other black protesters showed up on the steps of the state capitol brandishing their legally owned guns to protest the proposed law. 
the racist California legislature is now considering legislation aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless at the very same time racist police agencies throughout the country are intensifying the terror, brutality, murder, and repression of black people. Can you take us through sort of how you see the through line from what you cited, that example of Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party in the 60s to where we are today? Well, there's no doubt that the racial dimensions of gun rights and support for gun control have shifted over the years. Whereas it was the Black Panthers and Malcolm X in the 1960s saying you have a right to bear arms to protect yourself against tyrannical government. After all, who knew more about tyrannical government and victimization than African Americans in the 1960s who felt that they were really oppressed by the police and other government agents? But uh, things really have changed. Over time, while the NRA traditionally had a very moderate view of gun rights up until the late 1960s and early 1970s, in the 1970s, they pick up on these themes that are hit upon by the Black Panthers and others to say that people have a right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, not only against protection in your home, but also protection on the streets. And you had not only the right to protect yourself against confrontation from criminals, but also a right to protect yourself from government tyranny. That's the kind of argument we see all the time being made by the NRA. And when we come back, we'll talk about how today's coalition of gun rights supporters, mostly white and rural Americans, came to be. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. So how did the modern-day coalition of gun rights supporters form? Well, it traces back to Cincinnati in 1977. There were a lot of, uh, and a growing number, of single-issue pro-gun voters arising in the 1970s. An increasing number of people who thought, uh, especially at a time of urban decay, rising startlingly high crime rates, that guns were primarily about defense against criminals and something that individuals should have for their personal protection wherever they wanted to have them. And that coalition really was given voice by the NRA. The NRA uh, was radically transformed in the mid-1970s 
Um, whereas the leadership before that had been pretty moderate on gun rights and supported gun control, uh, at least some forms of gun regulation. Uh, the leadership back then said, you know what, it's time to retreat from political activity and move the headquarters to Colorado Springs so we can refocus on outdoors activity and hunting. This upset a growing group of hardliners and dissidents within the NRA membership, including a man named Harlan Carter, who became the leader of the dissidents. The, the point is that when someone, when a shopkeeper has a gun, it isn't that he seeks to shoot somebody. He seeks instead to have something there so that he will avoid confrontations. And at the annual board meeting of the NRA in 1977, held in Cincinnati, Ohio, the dissidents uh, launched um, a secret coordinated plan to take over the NRA at the annual membership meeting. And indeed, the very next day when the sun rose, uh, the NRA had replaced its entire board and leadership structure with the dissidents. And uh, those dissidents, when they took control of the NRA, committed the organization to re fighting uh, or re-engaging with political activity to become a hard-hitting opponent of gun control wherever they saw it, and to emphasize that guns were not about hunting ducks or hunting deer. They were about personal protection and fighting against government tyranny. Yep, you heard that right. The NRA used to be pro-gun control and much, much more focused on the outdoors than political lobbying. But that takeover in 1977 led to ads like this one. We've had enough of the lies, the sanctimony, the arrogance, the hatred, the pettiness, the fake news. We are done with your agenda to undermine voters' will and individual liberty in America. And with that new approach came a much bigger involvement in politics. The NRA became an important part of the coalition that led to the election of Ronald Reagan as president in 1980 and has since only solidified its role as a key partner in the Republican Party's political coalition. But in the year 2021, just how much sway does the NRA still have? Well, the NRA today is going through unprecedented financial hardships and uh, legal scrutiny. Uh, the organization uh, has been very poorly managed from the top. So there's no doubt that the NRA as an organization is really struggling right now. But as Professor Winkler explains, that doesn't mean that the gun rights movement is necessarily weakening. Although the NRA was definitely one of the key organizers of that movement, the movement now has taken on a life of its own. And there are so many pro-gun politicians out there and so many pro-gun voters out there that they don't really need the NRA to be the strong organization that it once was. They've got a lock on the Republican Party. And uh, as a result, gun rights are as strong as ever, even though the NRA is at a remarkably weak point in its own organizational history. And part of the reason those rights are so strong is that over the past few years, the federal judiciary has been dominated by conservative judges who were appointed with protecting the Second Amendment in mind, just like President Trump promised back in 2016. We are going to appoint justices that will feel very strongly about the Second Amendment, that will not do damage to the Second Amendment. And back in 2008, the Supreme Court made a landmark decision that helped take that culture of gun rights, that vision of freedom, and enshrine it into the law. In 2008, the Supreme Court's Heller decision 
was the first Supreme Court case to clearly and unambiguously say that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to bear arms rather than just protecting state militias from federal interference. And that case also was the first to strike down a gun control law by the Supreme Court. But as Professor Winkler points out, these issues existed well before the Heller case was decided. Just as an example, this week marked the 22nd anniversary of the Columbine school shooting in 1999. But what the court decides to take up next may have an even bigger impact. Long before 2008, America had a major gun violence problem. Gun rights uh, were very well protected by political leaders, even in the absence of the Heller case and even in the absence of a Supreme Court ruling saying the Second Amendment protected an individual right to bear arms. And it seems likely that those justices over time uh, are, are going to take up some more Second Amendment cases and could call into question some of the things that the gun safety reform movement has at the very top of its agenda. As we record this, there have been at least 50 mass shootings in the United States since that tragic Atlanta spa shooting last month. But it's not just the last month. This has been happening with a horrific frequency in recent years. Our flag was still flying at half-staff for the victims of the horrific murder of eight primarily Asian-American people in Georgia when 10 more lives were taken in a mass murder in Colorado. This is an epidemic, for God's sake, and it has to stop. In some cases, you can survive one mass shooting only to lose your life in another. My name is Susan Orfanos. My son was Tel Orfanos. We lost him last night at the borderline shooting. My son was in Las Vegas with a lot of his friends, and he came home. He didn't come home last night, and I don't want prayers. I don't want thoughts. I want gun control, and I hope to God nobody else sends me any more prayers. I want gun control. And yet, despite the horrific scale of lost lives, we've seen little action from Washington that would put new laws in place to prevent more deaths from happening. There's no doubt that we have too many mass shootings in America. Newtown was really the mass shooting back in December 2012 that really put the mass shooting phenomenon on America's uh, cognitive map, if you will. Connecticut State Police responding to reports of a shooting, we're told, at Newton Elementary School. And in the wake of Newtown, what we saw at the federal government was no new federal regulation. President Obama pushed for regulation and new laws like universal background checks, but it went nowhere uh, in the Senate. I'm going to speak plainly and honestly about what's happened here. Because the American people are trying to figure out how can something have 90% support and yet not happen. And as a result, no gun control laws of significance have been adopted by the federal government since Newtown. We've seen a different reaction at the state level. And at the state level, as federalism might predict, we've seen answers and responses in two different directions. In states that have stronger support for gun safety regulation, like California and New York and Connecticut, we've seen the adoption of laws to close the loopholes that exist in federal law, things like universal background checks or restrictions on high-capacity magazines and assault weapons. But in other states, 
um, states that are red states where gun rights are very well protected um, uh, by politicians, we've seen the opposite response. We've seen an increasing liberalization of uh, gun laws, um, uh, repealing existing statutes that restrict access to guns or where you can carry them. Uh, So for instance, in recent years, we've seen um, about a dozen and a half states adopt laws that allow uh, people to carry firearms on the streets concealed without a permit, uh, whereas previously a permit was required. So we are seeing very different responses. In fact, just this week, the Texas House passed a bill known as Constitutional Carry that would allow people over the age of 21 to carry a handgun openly or concealed without a permit. Americans are divided on how to reduce gun violence. Uh, You know, about half of Americans think that the way to reduce gun violence is to restrict access to guns. About another half of Americans think that the way to reduce gun violence is to give more people more guns, and that if there's more guns on the streets, violent criminals will be deterred from committing crimes. Because of that very, very different approach to uh, how to remedy the gun violence problem, we've really seen um, overall a stalemate in America. Do you see a way out of that stalemate? I mean, given that assessment of the current climate, do you see anything coming down the pike that indicates to you that stalemate has some path to being broken? Well, it certainly does not appear that in the short term that stalemate is going to be broken anytime soon. Um, The NRA and its allies really are firmly convinced that any gun control law is a slippery slope that takes us down the inevitable uh, track towards total civilian disarmament. I think that's absurd. We have uh, 400 million guns in America. They're not going anywhere. Um, At the same time, uh, we have in the gun control or gun safety movement often a focus on laws that seem not only unlikely to reduce gun violence significantly, but seem designed to encourage the most opposition to any gun control law. And so if no big change is on the horizon, given the political state of affairs as you see them, is there anything you think President Biden can do, you know, in these opening months of his new administration that can actually have real impact? There are some steps that uh, President Biden can take and has taken that uh, might contribute to reducing the gun violence problem in America, but probably not in any great significant way. But the truth is that to make a real impact on gun violence in America, you need new federal legislation. And uh, it doesn't seem that President Biden is likely to get that. Uh, As long as you need 60 votes in the Senate and there are Republicans in the Senate who are dead set against any kind of gun control law, the president's power is very limited. He can tinker at the margins with existing gun laws, but he can't adopt a new gun law and can't really fundamentally change the gun debate in America. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Politically Sound. Thanks so much for listening. If you could please take a few minutes, give us a rating and a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're listening for the first time, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you get our latest episode each week delivered right to you. Politically Sound is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Mimi Mutesa and Will Cadigan. Haley Thomas is our senior producer. Francisco Monroy is our engineer. And David Toledo is the team's production assistant. The executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. 
we're off for the next few weeks, but we're going to bring you some excellent podcasts in the meantime. Talk to you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.